delighted that you have found the Mindset Mental Meets podcast. I'm Angela Cox, your host and indeed the Mindset Mentor, and I'll be interviewing executives and founders at the top of their game to find out what lies beneath. I want to know what makes people proud, how they define success, what holds them back and indeed what drives them forward. This is authentic and natural conversation with the best in the business. So listen in, enjoy and if you love what you hear, please do leave a review. And now over to today's guest. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. I'm Angela Cox and I've got a podcast today that's entitled That'll Do, Won't Do, But Perfectionism Won't Work Either. And as we go through, you'll come to understand why I'm talking about those two different aspects. But I want to start, first of all, with telling you a bit of a personal story. And the personal story started on the 19th of June this year, so we're in 2021. And on the afternoon of the 19th of June, I was feeling probably as excited as I have been for a long time. We'd got to a point as a family, so myself and Mr. Cox, my husband, and my two children, where we'd decided to make quite a significant life change We wanted to move from the countryside where we lived in the middle of nowhere to living in the middle of a town. And we wanted to do that to help our children get some more independence. We wanted them to be able to walk to school. My husband had got himself an amazing new job as a director for the NHS. And I wanted to take my executive coaching business to the next level and establish another practice in Chichester and just really have a life where we could connect with more people and feel part of a community. Now, we'd been working for a few months to make all of this happen and all of the dots were joining and everything was coming together. And I posted on social media that I was feeling this excitement and that in a month's time, all of this would be coming together. And then I went to bed. And I went to bed on my own because my husband and my daughter had both traveled to Swansea, which was probably 250 miles away from where we live. I never know the distances. And so they'd gone there and I'd gone to bed and my son was with me in his room. And it was about midnight when the Fitbit on my wrist was vibrating. And I sort of came round because I was fast asleep. And noticed that it was somebody trying to connect with me via Facebook. And when I started to kind of come around even more, I realized that it was the wife of one of my husband's friends. And when I answered the Facebook call, she was telling me that Martin was actually in hospital and that he'd been admitted to hospital several hours earlier, but they were struggling to get hold of me. And therefore, it had taken until midnight for them to be able to tell me that that's what was happening. She said in her conversation that Martin had needed to undergo a brain scan, but that was as much as she knew. 
And that was a, a kind of massive thing, as you can imagine, hearing those words about your husband who's miles away. But then actually what transpired was several phone calls to the hospital trying to get information and actually not finding out anything until half past four in the morning when a consultant told me that he had a serious brain injury and was in and out of consciousness. So life-changing moment. You're sitting going from one extreme of excitement for a new life and then suddenly that's all pulled into jeopardy. And the goals that we'd set ourselves as a family were, as I say, in a position where they felt like they were being taken away. And so what I want to do now is just to kind of give you a picture of what those early days and early weeks were like. I took some recordings of Martin in the first few weeks, and we went from unconsciousness to hardly any communication and not being able to walk to very jumbled communication. And this recording that I'm going to play for you now was after about 10 days of Martin being in hospital, and it'll just give you a flavor of what it was we were facing. So just take a listen to this now. I will just say that this recording is quite noisy in places because I'd taken Martin outside of the hospital and it was near a main road. So if you can just ignore that, but obviously focus on what he's saying and trying to say and just how confused he is. Yeah, I've got, got my fingers though. today is this afternoon. And hopefully tomorrow's has been the the way things has been out has been in the past gradually um, yeah gradually how things have been have been fed yeah and how they um, carry on yeah and then it'll be um, the Superman which is where I'm sort of yeah. A Superman. Mm. Well, I got this time like the um, this yeah, shine, uh, shine of this um, moment, moment in stare, and um, again this way is just trying to keep it on top off. Yeah. Carol sent your Superman socks. Yep. Do you know what that means? No. No. No, but I'm hoping that I can, uh, you know, I can crash out, crash out as much as possible, and that can be as cued between, you know, what I am and yeah. what I'm trying to be. Yeah. So you close that gap. Yeah. Yeah. And get back to you. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, don't want to be, um, you know, uh, too much for it. So therefore, you know, when I see today's, you know, fulminations has been far too, you know, too much has been formed, had been thought about, yeah. whereas now I would much rather have sort of um, how I would get, um, the town would be uh, the stationary and, yeah, get kept, you know, me, um, me pen bone of different tyres, yeah. you know, through that way and a little bit of, uh, around the way that ham brain is in supposed to keep it on stop and uh, stop for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. 
remember what my name is? Uh, you are John Collable. You'll be you'll be set as our our name, but name, but and what you're stubborn. And I think um, you've become you've become Ange. Ange. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Ange. Yeah. What's my last name? Uh, and then Koch. Cox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your name? Yeah, mine is Martin. Yeah. Martin. Aye. Aye. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to put my Sember S. Put my Sarah. Sarah will people some down. Yeah, I know. And so there's probably a bit of humour in there if you're listening, but you can also, I'm sure, detect how frightening that is when, you know, your partner of nearly 15 years is suddenly in that position. Now, I'm really pleased to say that we're now on, as we're recording this, on the 30th of September, so over three months since all of this took place. And Mr. Cox has been at home with me for seven weeks and been going through intensive rehab. And he's here with me now, and hopefully you'll be able to see the difference. Welcome, Mr. Cox. Hello. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's kind of strange at one level to listen to that replayed back from a different perspective. I was probably somewhat fortunate as I didn't really know much about those early days and weeks per se, but just listening to what the impact was for for Angela and the family is is pretty tough, but also it's pretty good to be where I am now and delighted to be back and talking to you. Uh, it's, I mean, obviously we're together every day, <laughs> but for me, seeing the transition you've made, particularly after departing from hospital, you're in hospital for nearly 10 weeks and then sort of coming out of that and now seeing the progress you make every day through the rehab is just incredible. And one of the things we wanted to talk about today is the fact that that goal that we'd set ourselves as a family, we wanted all the way through this to continue with that goal. So as you say, in the early weeks, you didn't really know what was going on, but I had this connection to that goal and a real sort of desire to make sure that that was still the case. And I had lots of people saying to me, you shouldn't move, you should stay where you are. You know, life has to change now. It's never going to be the same. And I was wedded to the fact that that wasn't an option and that we were going to carry on and you were going to start your job. And so we wanted to talk today, didn't we, about how having a goal can actually drive you forward, but sometimes you need to change the way that you go about it. Yeah, I think totally spot on. I don't think it was ever out of my mind, excepting when I was a little bit confused, admittedly. But just as I was getting those sort of concrete, solid thoughts, then the goal remained the same, that we were going to you know, build this new life, new experience, new role from my perspective. What had changed and the bit we needed to work through was how we would get there would be different to the way that we originally thought we were, which, you know, given I spent, you know, 
30 plus years in corporate <laughs> kind of summarizes just about every project, every <laughs> plan I've ever sat down and, uh, and dealt with is you never quite get there in the way that you think you will. And if you become slavish to you know, hitting the plan and staying on track with that and following the way you were going to get there, then that becomes quite troublesome and difficult mm. to manage rather than picturing the goal and continuing to work out, well, what am I going to do to get there and make that happen? And I think while I was in hospital, you know, I had plenty of time to think yeah. and kind of work those things out particularly as I was the the, the weak link in, in the project plan, for want of a better phrase. And, you know, it, it was with me that everything had changed. And it was how did we move from where we originally thought we were to where we were now to where we wanted to get to. Yeah. And I guess that's where we get that second part of today's title, isn't it? That perfectionism won't work. And you're married to a perfectionist, Mr. Cox. And so an impatient one, yeah. An impatient one who likes everything to work as I set it out to work. And this has been a massive lesson for me in terms of needing to, to veer away from the intended way of working whilst keeping my eye on the goal, because everything had to change in terms of the way that we got there. I mean, for one, I didn't get there with you because you were in a hospital bed. I had to get there by asking for help and accepting help from other people, which is something that I'm not very good at. So that kind of complete deviation from the way that we set it out is a huge lesson for me in terms of moving away from the idea of perfection but also you and I are never a fan of the tolerance of mediocrity. You know, we talk about this a lot, don't we? And that's where that that'll do, won't do has come from. Because one of the things that we experienced when Martin was in hospital was this idea that there is one path that a person takes. And I can understand that because, you know, when you look at a population of people, there's probably 70% of those patients that will go down the path. But sadly for Martin, he was what was classed as an outlier and every business will have outliers. So I think it's relevant from a leadership perspective. And when you're an outlier, it means that you need a different way of working to the one that's been set out. And what we experienced week after week was people with great intentions insisting that Martin needed to be shoehorned down a process that wasn't fit for him. And we were being asked to accept that. And for me, one of the markers for success that we heard a lot in terms of your recovery was if you can make a cup of coffee, then you're doing brilliantly. And I can understand that that might be a marker of success for, you know, perhaps a, a stroke victim who is elderly and making a cup of coffee is a big thing. But I'm looking at my husband going, hang on, I've got an executive man here who's highly capable in many different areas. And I'm not going to accept that making a cup of coffee is what we're shooting for. And so I wouldn't accept the that'll do as being the marker. And so I was fighting against that all the time and encouraging you to shoot above that too. And what we were finding was actually the processes that were in place were not set up. They were set up in other areas of the NHS, but because of the way that you'd been put in the top of the funnel, 
they weren't available to you. And so we got ourselves in this position where we were stuck a lot of the time and you weren't getting the help and the care that you needed in the right way. Lots of well-intended people. I'm going to keep reiterating that. But it's frustrating because that'll do is as good as you're going to get. Yeah, it's, you know, what I'm reflecting is that, you know, that gap between the goals. So what was deemed as acceptable or, you know, success in the eyes of the team in the hospital for me was very different to what I was aspiring to. And you know, how often does that happen in the corporate world where you're working in partnership and actually that partnership isn't particularly effective because where you're going and where they're aiming to get to and following that kind of normal standard flow of the process can be really you know, challenging and actually end up that you either end up in a conflict that you're trying to drag them in a, a direction. And, and you know, Angela touched on, you know, it was you know, quite lively that time trying to move things forward so we could head towards our goal. But the almost the dogged desire to stick to the plan, the method and the way things are done around here and what those measures of success are. Yeah, it was a real challenge that time for us, but also we recognize for, you know, for the staff because, mm. you know, they had goals to achieve and what they were set out to do and what was acceptable and how it worked and the method. What we couldn't do is be complacent and allow their method to actually define the goal that we were setting out to achieve. I will caveat it with, mm. I do love coffee. So learning how to make <laughs> coffee is a massive bonus in my own opinion. And I was, like you bringing me coffee in the morning. But it was, it, you know, in the end, it proved to be something that as a measure of success, it was that kind of, you know, at that basic level, rather than helping us get to where we wanted to in terms of our own goals and the things that we'd set out sort of in, you know, early to mid-June and, you know, that got blown out of the water on the 19th. Mm. And so this kind of difference between that'll do, won't do, but perfectionism won't work either created this gap where... I learned some of my biggest lessons and I've already alluded to the fact that accepting help is one of them. And there were some people, I've just got to say this, that perfect strangers to me, some people that have known Martin before, really came through. My clients were incredible. And just acts of kindness that you just don't expect. And some people so dogged about it in terms of, you know, you get people who say, oh, can I help at all? And happy to help. But, you know, that never comes to fruition. But other people who were insistent on helping and would spell out what they were going to do, and that made it easy for me to accept. So that was incredible. But I guess the other part of the gap was about resilience and about the feeling of weakness, which I experienced probably three times to a huge extent where I just felt completely stuck, completely on the floor, you know, often in tears, often feeling desperate in terms of how I was going to move this forward. And then actually finding the strength to do something. And when Mr. Cox and I were discussing this, it comes down to experimentation, which again is moving away from the idea of perfectionism and 
being willing to try something. So I recall three occasions during this journey where that desperation was huge. And one of those was the time when Martin was in the hospital in Swansea, where he was for the first chunk of his injury. And just knowing that this that'll do, won't do process was so acute there that he was in an orthopedic ward based on the fact he had a fractured skull. And by the way, we don't know how this happened. (laughs) So that's a question many people have, but we don't know because Martin can't remember. And he was in there based on the fact he had this fractured skull when actually the predominant injury was the brain injury and the people around him weren't set up to take care of that. And so I'm in this situation where I'm seeing him decline day on day. And he's telling me in his word that he feels like he's not getting what he needs, even in his confusion, he knew that. And I felt this state of desperation and it always comes at one o'clock in the morning. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I actually ended up reaching out to the exec team of the hospital via LinkedIn of all places to try and get heard and to try and get an expert to see him. And, And they responded to that, which I think is great. And we got an expert in the next day who was able to assess Martin and say what happened. We then moved him to a new hospital and it was kind of fry and pan to fire really in in terms of, again, they didn't have the expertise, but he was put on a stroke ward. So, you know, slightly better in terms of being set up to help some of Martin's condition, but not brain experts. And there we hit another desperate point. And this is where the focus on the goal for me had to change. and. It was where Martin was sent for an MRI scan to try and understand what was happening with his eyesight because his eyesight was failing in one of his eyes and to try and determine whether there was something going on in his brain before this accident happened. And I remember him texting me in the morning, the morning I had a flat tire on the car, which is another story of resilience. (laughs) And I remember him texting me a picture of a drip in his hand and saying, oh, look, they put a drip in my hand at two o'clock in the morning. And you can imagine alarm bells were ringing in my head. And at that point, he was still quite confused. And I was saying to him, well, why have they put that in your arm? And he said, it must be because I'm getting better. And I thought, no, they wouldn't be putting a drip in your arm if you're getting better. So I rang the ward at eight o'clock in the morning. And they said to me, you need to come in. Now, when you get that message, you know, something isn't quite right. And so I came in and sat by the bed. And the next thing, the consultant came to see us, didn't she? Yep. And well, you can say what happened. Yeah. So it was a a really strange one. And, And Angela's touched on the experience from a patient perspective, certainly in those early stages, was that I was almost obsolete in terms of the process. So information wasn't necessarily being shared across without you know Angela being available, which is kind of tricky to deal with. So the specifics of that situation was the consultant came in and had a conversation with us, which indicated that they felt it was cancer and that I had tumours in the brain. 
rather than specifically the the injuries that had been picked up previously. And those tumours were pretty severe. They were seen as you know, likely to be stage four cancer tumours, which of course tend to have a, a relatively short and unsuccessful prognosis to them. So in essence, kind of went from a, a position you know, for myself and if you think about where we were in terms of our goals and what we were believing and what we were aiming for, is from you know the successful new life to not having a life continue mm. afterwards, which is you know, a fairly tough conversation to have. And I know you know people go through these conversations, and I I can't imagine you know anything worse in term mm. in terms of that where it sends you. From a you know a thought perspective and a feeling perspective, it's like something that you know I I never want to and never expect to you know to go through again. So that was pretty much the the diagnosis was that actually the injuries were related to tumours and therefore I had basically I had cancer. I remember being there for you as we were given this prognosis and I the fear was real I could feel the fear immediately in my body and I sat with you for maybe 20 minutes or so after the consultant had come and then gone and you were still in a position where you weren't fully able to assess risk so one of the higher order executive functions in the brain is about risk assessments and many of the executive functions of your brain at that time were impeded. And so you were looking at this and, and not fully understanding what was going on at that point. And I remember walking off the ward to the desk where all of the nurses and their consultant was. And literally for the first time in my life, actually having a panic attack where I just couldn't get my breathing sorted and my heart was racing and the fear had just taken over. And then sort of recovering from that and going home after a few hours and, and really just starting to think about what all of that meant in terms of our future, our life together, picturing myself on my own with the kids and just the most horrible feelings that you go through. But whilst knowing that all of our goal was probably not going to come to fruition. Still feeling that I wanted to have this life with the children because it was what we'd worked for. And we went through this for two or three days of, you know, oh my God, what does this mean? And we had to wait. We were told on the Monday, we had to wait until the Thursday for some experts in another hospital to examine Martin's scans and, and, basically give a full prognosis. And that was happening on the Thursday afternoon. Now, Martin's already told you I'm impatient. So you can imagine how long those days were. And on the Thursday evening, my phone rang and I answered the phone and it was the consultant who said it was good news. And I remember saying, oh my God, does that mean that you can operate? And she said, no, no. She said, it's good news because we've got it wrong. And I was like, what do you mean you've got it wrong? And she said, it's not cancer. She said, 
the radiologist has seen the scan and thought that they were brain tumors, but actually they're not brain tumors, they're brain bleeds. And so he's got more bleeding in the brain than we first thought. There's actually a really big bleed in the very core of the brain in the white matter and several others. And originally we thought there was only two, but the great news is they're not tumors. It's not cancer. And I remember having this moment where I questioned her and said, well, how can I believe that? How can I believe anything that you tell me? Because it's such a fundamental mistake. And, you know, Martin's more accepting of mistakes than I am. It's something I really struggle with being the perfectionist. But I recognize that mistakes are made. But how do I know that the new radiologist knows more than the other radiologist who, who made the first diagnosis? And so it was this real kind of moment in time where I was not trusting of anything that was being said to me. And I said that I needed to meet with them the next day. And so, you know, you can imagine that was a desperate time, but it was one that I always say, I'll write a book one day that is the day I celebrated five bleeds in the brain. Because when you go from Martin's not going to be here to he is going to be here, he's got five bleeds, that's sort of a celebration moment. It shouldn't be because it's still crap, let's face it. You know, and I think there were lots of people who were saying, oh, that's amazing. The people that knew about it. And I was kind of going, well, it is, but it's still rubbish because we're still in this mess. But it was that kind of, thank God, you know, nothing terrible is going to happen. So then we were back on with our original goal. And I start sorting out the move and sorting out the children for their new school and all of this going on in the background. And at this point, I'm actually exhausted physically, mentally, because this has been going on for weeks and trying to do that on top of the most stressful things you can do, like moving house was not easy, but you know, I'm determined and that's what I did. And I guess then the third point of desperation came on the day of the move. So I'm moving house with, with two children and dog from Bedford to Chichester. And we have movers and all of that's happening over a two-day period. And on the day we're moving into the house, I've got movers sort of saying, where do you want this? Where do you want that? You know, blah de blah blah And I'm helping all of that happen, trying to sort the kids out. And I get a text message off Martin saying, they've not been to pick me up. Now, what do I mean by that? He was supposed to have been collected that day the day of the move and transferred to what's called an ABI unit, which is a brain injury unit that offers rehab. And they didn't pick him up. <laughs> and so I was thinking, what on earth is happening? Because he's meant to have been picked up at eight o'clock in the morning. It's now three o'clock in the afternoon. And so in the middle of trying to move and the vans are half unloaded, I'm then having to start to try and solve this problem. And that involves phone calls to the various people in the hospital. Now, one thing that is amazing is you can actually speak to anybody in the hospital just by going through the switchboard who knew. And I would get hold of discharge people and, and various you know, people in the process to find out what's happening. And I'm not going to tell you the ins and outs. There was lots of ins and outs about it that aren't right to share on the podcast, but are fundamentally wrong. But we got in a situation where the place fell through over the next few days and Martin would have been stuck in the hospital bed 
for another perhaps two to three weeks waiting for another place. And while he's in the hospital bed, he's not getting any rehab because there aren't any experts there that can work for him or work with him. And so I'm in another desperate place. And I remember again, one o'clock in the morning thinking, what on earth can I do to get out of this situation? And just cutting to you for a moment then, what was that like for you on the other side? Yeah, it was it, it, it was pretty tough from twofold. There's one I also, you know, I'd already knew what was going on at home and the timing was you know, borderline impeccable in terms of you know, when that came <laughs> along, but also how that knitted into you know, the goal and you know how we were moving forward and we were having to be aligned to their way so the abi was closer to chichester and it's quite difficult as well working in hospitals across trusts and particularly across regions so working between bedfordshire and you know west sussex and east sussex was you know insanely challenging for you know for them even more just insanity for angela and i and it was without a shadow of a doubt, a setback in terms of, you know, how I was feeling mentally. We, yeah, we had our goal and the vision, everyone was moving. I was due to move and be much more local. Otherwise I was set with the possibility that I would be a hundred plus and three hours away from Angela and the children for an undefined period it was never the perfect solution for us, but it enabled us to bring things closer together and keep that connection in terms of the new life, working together and being together as a family. And it felt like all of that had been removed at that mm-hmm. time. So from a, you know, from a mindset perspective, it was my, you know, my second low point beyond the, you know, the cancer, you know, misdiagnosis, which, in itself, as Angela said, pragmatically, people make mistakes and I got the rub of the green with that <laughs> one. And I'll you know, never worry too much or you know, criticize too much around the mistake because fundamentally I got, you know, I got a decent hand out of it and therefore I was able to move forward. But this was one where it kind of set me back because I didn't see and couldn't see how I was going to move forward and how we were going to move forward and how we would make the bigger goal happen. It just got in the way. It was an obstacle at that time. Yeah. And it's funny listening to you because one of the things that you do and the way that we operate as a couple is you are the fixer in the family. So I am generally strong and I'm a fixer for everyone else, which is why the work I do as a coach is good because I'm really great at helping other people. I'm not the one in our family who does that. So, you know, I very much kind of look to Martin for that leadership, for that decision-making, for that support really. And, and suddenly he's not in that position and I'm feeling responsible. And it was a really interesting dynamic for me to think how on earth am I going to fix this on my own without him? And we're in that kind of that'll do, won't do, but perfectionism won't work space again, because the that'll do, won't do was I'm looking at the ABI journey. And every time I looked at them, I kept thinking, 
he doesn't look like these people that are on the website. ABIs are very much set up to help people make the cup of coffee because often with brain injury, people have very debilitating physical needs. And thankfully for us, that wasn't the case with Martin. But what we did have was a huge gap on the cognitive side in terms of executive functioning. Now, Martin might pass a test score as an average human being, but where we were coming from wasn't an average human being. You know, he's high intelligence, high executive functioning, and, and the gap that the brain injury caused was acute. And therefore, that's what we were trying to fill. So he needed a certain range of expertise based around neuropsychology, neurophysio, that could help to bridge that gap. So the idea of an ABI was the only thing that was open to us, kept coming back to me as this is a that'll do moment. And actually, is that going to get him where he needs to be? And now it's been pulled away from us anyway. It's not even an option on the table. We have to wait for it again. And then I've got that perfectionism drive that is, oh, you know, how am I going to make this happen? Someone was saying to me, set up a GoFundMe. And the perfectionist in me was going, oh, you can't do that. What are people going to think? You know, you're going out begging. There's a whole connotation around that. You know, people think that we should have had private health cover and, you know, we probably should have. And at points in time we have had, but just from the way that we've kind of transitioned into self-employment, we've just not got round to it like many people don't. And that kind of going out and asking for help thing is huge. And I really thought that nobody would. And then if nobody would, how would that make me feel? You know, I'd feel like a failure or I'd feel like I was being rejected and all of those horrible feelings that as humans, we desperately try to avoid. So the perfectionist in me didn't want to do it. And yet, because of the that'll do, won't do, I knew that I had to do something. So in the end, at one o'clock in the morning, I thought, oh God, desperate, need to do something. I'll experiment. What's the worst that can happen? Nobody gives anything. Okay. So I set it up and I kind of put myself forward in terms of how I was feeling. And I think I said, desperate wife needs help to get her husband rehab. And I went to bed. And then the next morning I woke up and there was about, 150 pounds donated. And I was like, wow, people have actually donated. And then I put it out on my social media. And well, I remember saying to the children every few hours, oh my God, we're at a thousand pounds, we're at 5,000 pounds. And ultimately it got to 20,000 pounds across the space of a few days. And names that we have worked with in the past you know, years ago coming through clients, employers, just people that you perhaps haven't connected with for many, many years. And then people who are in our immediate network now and our friendship groups, just coming forward in ways that were unreal. And, you know, given what they could, and that might be huge amounts of money or small amounts of money, but every single thing made a difference because it put us in control. And it meant that we could make a decision and employ the right people to help us understand what Martin needed 
Now, it took us a further week to get him out of hospital because of more things going wrong and just lots of ridiculous things. But we did get him out and were able to employ the right neurologist and the right eye specialist and neuropsychology and speech and language and neurophysio and all of the people that is needed. And he's been working with those now. And it isn't that'll do. You know, these are experts who have transformed the way that Martin communicates and even better in many cases than where you were before. If you were to see his posture now, which you can't see because one of the issues we've had is around balance and sort of falling over and, you know, hurting himself quite a lot. His posture has transformed beyond measure from where it was before, thanks to his neurophysio. So we've been able to, thanks to me overcoming my pride and being vulnerable, you responding to that and helping and Martin working really hard every day to relearn and experiment and try and not be debilitated by the stuff you couldn't do, but actually focus on the progress every day. And that is moving us towards our goal because what's happened this week in terms of your work? So in terms of my work, I had my occupational health assessment, which was positive. So expecting a report that will cover the opportunity to actually start the role that I set out to many, many moons ago. Still a little bit of work to do to square that off and get a date in the diary. But we're, you know, I'm aiming for something in October, which will be, you know, fantastic. And it feels like that's now the next challenge. I've kind of learned how to use the washing machine and the Mm. tumble dryer and peg stuff out on the line and cook things and some of the stuff that, you know, would have been part and parcel of that ABI experience, but actually I've just kind of had to get on and do it, but do it in a way that makes a difference. So yeah, I'm now ready for that next stage and have done a lot of, you know, a lot of work in the background alongside the consultants and others and you know, the medical practitioners that we've linked into to really think about where I am and how do I move myself forward? Because it's a, you know, it's a unique position for me, which is I feel like at one level, I lost a number of things that I had. So particularly my memory's been, you know, a great example that it's not as sharp as it used to be. So actually, the problem to fix is how do you recover your memory? I don't think I've actually been through that before in the 49 Hmm. years that I've nearly been going on this earth. So that's something I had to experiment about and practice around. And simple stuff like being able to, you know, walk up and down the stairs. And we have a, a house with two flights of stairs rather than one and just take up a morning coffee for Angela. The first time I tried to do that because of issues with my balance and just generally not having practice for the best part of three months walking around, I managed to spill a fair chunk of it and get you know hot coffee on my hand. So then I had to reassess, so how do I bring that forward and how do I achieve that smaller incremental, which helps us achieve the things we want to around the big goal, which is you know, part and parcel is me being back where I need to be and where I want to be to enable that big goal to happen. So there's been so Mm. much positive for it. And I just echo something that Angela said, which for me was the biggest learning 
from the GoFundMe is how connected we are to people and you know despite it feeling like it's been a long time and how generous people have Mm. been and how people have been willing to commit you know hard-earned money time and effort into helping us achieve our goal and how many things do we set off and think we have to do ourselves Mm. and but what we've learned is much more that willingness to ask and explore where you need help, whether that's physical, whether that's financial, whether that's expertise, mm. has to be part and parcel of the way we operate. And, you know, we, we've done that in our own relationship is we've asked each other for help, whereas historically we kind of had our way and that's how it would be. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, if Angela didn't you know, pull her weight, then I'd just be fed up. But now it's actually, you know, understanding where I can help, where I can add value. Or Angela coming to me and going, actually, can you help me with this? Are you saying I don't pull my weight, Mr. Cox? Did you hear that, everyone? No, (laughs) I'm just saying could, obviously. I'm making a note on something to work on next. But yeah, so I've now got that learning bit of make sure I'm careful what I say. Um, But it's that bit of, you know, we've had to learn to seek help and the power that help brings Mm. as the learning so how Mm. do you you know how do we make sure we take that learning forward and keep learning more importantly than the specifics is how do we keep learning from our experience yeah because you have this little thing don't you about what did you expect to happen what actually happened and what did you learn from it yeah. when it comes to sort of things going wrong or, you know, going off track? And we, we talk about being off track most of the time when you're going towards a goal. And actually, you know, we've been hugely off track this time, but we're still getting there when actually we've still got there. So it is that kind of you might meander. Yeah, that's a really valid point. And it's that bit about just because you've experienced something similar in the past doesn't necessarily mean what you're going to experience in the future is Mm. the same. And you don't always know the way to resolve or, you know, fix that or Mm. achieve that goal or fix that problem. But it's the same principles Mm. and the same method. You kind of need to to know where you're trying to get to and where you are. And then it's that little bit of, you know, well, what did you think would happen? What actually happened and what have you learned as a result of that? So the coffee being a great example, mm. you know, walking up there. Well, what did I learn is actually, you know, or what did I expect to happen? I expected to walk up there and, you know, no problem, you know, a little bit confident. And yeah, I did it one-handed. I was holding on. But actually, it was still a bit, you know, a bit wobbly. But actually then, so, you know, what did I learn as a result? Well, actually, I learned I used to fill Angela's coffee cup up right to the brim and actually when you're a little bit wobbly achieving that you know and doing that is always going to set you up with the potential to fail so therefore did that matter to the goal the goal was to get Mm. the coffee up there Angela doesn't measure how much coffee I bring her just the fact that there is a cup of coffee is a binary. Oh my god! I sound like such a diva. He brings me grapes as well, and he peels them yeah, while absolutely, wearing a, absolutely. a toga. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it's one of the habits we got into in terms in terms of our relationship. It's kind of I'm up up and about usually most mornings. I'm up first. Yeah, I'm not allowed during bed per se. You know, if I'm if I've woken up, I've usually got something that I'm trying to do. Yeah, whereas Angela is much more what she's trying to do is work. <laughs> it's stuff like that but it's just that little bit of me remembering what the goal is mm. the goal was 
you know, a nice cup of coffee upstairs mm. while Angela's working. It wasn't 360 milliliters no. of coffee. So, hey, 300 will be okay at, you know, at that point. And I can always make an extra one if you, you know, mm. if she wants it and I can fulfill it in different ways. So you get hung up about how you used to do it yeah how you used to do it versus what you needed to do now and that's a big lesson which we weren't going to cover today but I think it's worth just just pointing out because often when I'm working with people they talk about where they were in 2016 you know and that might be in terms of how they look or the shape they were in or how fit they were or you know what they were able to do at work And then they're looking at themselves today and they're saying, I want to get back to that. And we were in that mindset for the first few weeks. And that certainly I was. I want him back to the man he was. And actually, what we've learned is rather than getting back to the man you were and the relationship you had, I do want a better one. (laughs) We had to make that transition, didn't we, to where are we today? So what's the baseline now? And actually, how do we move forward from there? So it was a real kind of experience of re-baseline and then everything is progress rather than everything is failure because you're not like you were before. And so doing that has helped us progress, but also it's helped us progress together in a way that our relationship is going to be stronger because we're ironing out all of the things that we used to ignore, you know, and all of the things that you did that I didn't do. And therefore there's a gap or the other way around. So it, it is creating a better version of, of what we were and what you were and what I was. It's a comment I picked up, you know, a long time ago in my career. And I can't exactly remember who said it. So if you do listen to this, you know, please let me know and remind me who it was. But you you learn more from what you're good at and understanding what that is than you do from necessarily what you're not so good at but our focus is always on what isn't working rather than why are we being successful Mm. so how do you put that kind of learning and reflection into well what made me successful one of the reasons I can't be who I was in 2016 is I didn't really understand who I was at my best necessarily Mm. And how I was achieving that, and therefore trying to go back to it is quite challenging because either you've got to you know, almost you know, mentally or physically go back in time if you can to where you were and start reapplying some of those things. Or actually, do you know what? It's kind of gone, mm. you know, and that's a bit. Pull you, the essences of it, but not yeah. get too wedded to it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, sometimes we got to where we were, but we don't understand why we yeah. ever were there in the first place or what was the positives about it. We probably were in the same mode of we were still being critical about ourselves as, you know, in 2016, we weren't as good as we wanted to be. Mm. But we were now, four years later, we actually wish we were back where we were then yeah. rather than chasing what we thought 2020 might look like. Yeah. And that's kind of been, you know, been our part is reassessing and resetting the goals and mm-hmm. things we were going to move forward on you know things Angela talks about my posture you know that goes back to 20 what's funny my mum mentioned it to me is I put my back out a long time ago putting one of my daughters back in their nappy now bear in mind she turns 20 fairly soon that's how long I've had a mm-hmm. bit of a problem with my back 
but actually fixing it now for the first time is me actually moving forward in some of the things I should have fixed a long time ago. And that's not unique to my backache. It's, you know, there's plenty of things I do mindset-wise and behaviour-wise that I need to work on. And you're only fixing it now because it's a problem. And it's the same with, you know, we go back to private healthcare or, you know, we haven't got a will. Mm. You know, we're, we're one of the things when you're faced with a cancer diagnosis, you're thinking, oh, my God, we haven't got any of this stuff in place because we never get around to it. <laughs> and it only becomes a problem that you fix when the burning platform's there. And, and one of the things we're quite wedded to now is let's not wait for that burning platform to get this stuff sorted. And I think gratitude plays into that quite nicely as well in terms of, you know, really being grateful for being here, being together and having an opportunity to go for that goal that we've set because we know that it could have been different. And there were occasions where that was in jeopardy, certainly in the early days and then with the cancer diagnosis. So we do feel grateful. And I think when you come from the place of gratitude, there is a greater propensity within you to want to be the best that you can be because you realise the value of the life that you've got. Yeah, totally. You, you, know, you can't undermine it. We've only got one to live and therefore making the most of it and being grateful mm. for what you, know, what you have but also striving to achieve better things each time mm. is pivotal. You know, at the end of the day, you know, getting the most. You know, there, you know, a couple of times, you know, Angela and I could have settled, yeah. and you know, got could have gone down the that'll do, and you know, I, I could be here now, but you know, not necessarily getting around. I could be on a Zimmer frame, you yeah. know, as I was in the hospital, you know, for a period, but actually that's not what I wanted and that yeah. didn't link into the goal. So how was I going to, you know, going to move through that? Mm-hmm. You know, basically it was doing little things without the frame. You know, I was walking to and from the bathroom. It's only about 10 yards, but I wouldn't. With, take with me standing behind you thinking, oh my God, it's yeah. going to fall. Yeah. And I would, you know, I wouldn't take that. And, you know, lo and behold, I didn't fall. You didn't fall. You know, and then once I could do that, I could start doing, you know, start doing. <laughs> Hitting yourself stuff. in the face with a hammer. Uh, yeah. yeah well there, there's another there's a series of, of long stories uh, and stuff like that and but what's interesting as well is when Andrew and I talk about those things there's the you know what, what's the assumption versus you know, what what's the reality is I hit you know I hit myself in the face with a hammer because I'm naturally clumsy and not very good at DIY not because I've got a brain injury. <laughs> you know, it's something I should be careful of. I, I fell over in the garden. You and, fell over in the garden. And, you know, Angela saw me having fallen over and thought, oh, this must be because, you know, he's dizzy, you know, head injury, etc. It's actually, you know, I tripped over something and actually something in the garden broke that caused me to fall. <laughs> and actually I'd fallen on the lawn and it was much safer than where I could have fallen. But actually, you know, she didn't know. And that's that little bit about the learning as well. What you know, yeah. what do we learn as a result? It's actually, I'm not going to stand where I was standing because it's not safe. And this thing isn't safe. Not actually, Martin can't stand up in the garden. Which is kind of my go-to position is you just like not, you can't do anything because you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> and how many times in life have we stopped ourselves from doing something? Yeah. Because either we've said it or someone else has made us feel like we couldn't do things. Mm. 
And how do you get yourself so that you feel like you can? Or if you don't, you understand why and what you're going to do differently yeah. to get where you want to get to. You know, for me, it's that bit of you know, keep the goals as your focus and what you're aiming for. But don't be precious and prescriptive about how you're going to get there. Which is the perfectionism. It yeah. links into the perfectionism. So, you know, I always used to say, it, you know, when I, when I was working, the only thing I guarantee you about a plan is that's exactly how it won't happen. Yeah. So the more prescriptive and connected to the plan you are and the more you want to hit it in the way that it's planned will actually restrict you from getting to the goal because you miss the chance to learn, you miss the chance to do things different. And you miss the chance to adapt. But you need a plan. You've just got to not be wedded. To you it. need you need to do planning. You need yeah. to work out how you're going to, you know, what the steps are that you're going to take to get from where you are to where you want to get to. You don't necessarily need them all, but you need to, you know, plan forward and have at least one. So how am I going to get to the next step? And then from then on, move forward. You know, because we're clever as human beings, we often work out a number of them in a row and we can do the small sequence, but it's that bit of, not expecting, you know, that I know and I can plan out to the letter mm. where I want to get, you know, to in my next, you know, in my new role in the next three to five years time. I have a rough idea what I want and mm. a rough idea what I should be doing now to help me get there. But I'm not setting out, you know, what I'm going to be doing in 2024. No. Because I haven't got to 2024 and I haven't lived all the things and learned from all the things I'm going to do between now and then. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we are here now where we are and it's over three months since the day that whatever happened, happened. We still don't know. And the difference in you, particularly in the last two to three weeks, I've seen a huge difference in terms of you becoming the version of you that you're going to need to be to be successful at work. And, you know, us kind of coming together again as a couple rather than patient carer which I hated by the way so I'm really glad that we're back to husband and wife again I guess it's that kind of there's a miracle in there somewhere there's a lot of hard work and effort that's gone into it there's still work to do so there's still some rehab certainly over the next few weeks that is happening and then it will taper off but will be there in the background for the coming months but there's that kind of realization that when you focus on where you're going and you have that vision and you have that determination you can make things happen if you move away from the idea of perfectionism but you also don't settle for mediocrity and if you do it in a way that is honest and connected and you know we've been really honest with each other all the way through there are times when it has been so so tough for us as a couple for us as a family but we've not given up and you know if you go back to that voice recording at the beginning who would think that you'd be sitting here now having a conversation in the way that you are and now your tummy's rumbling because it's lunchtime <laughs> absolutely yeah but last thing is uh, you know, what hospitals get you into <laughs> Having it, eating eating at certain points so yeah 12 o'clock is you know is pretty much you know lunchtime as it should be so we're not far off that so that you know it, it's spot on and i think you know angela's point around us you know what i'd echo in there is you know what did you expect to happen what actually happened and what did you learn as a result 
that learning should never be allocated or given a view. So it's easy to say, well, it didn't happen as I expected it, therefore it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. And a mistake is a negative thing and it can actually drag us into a negative spiral. Probably in the early days, both of us got into that habit of mm-hmm. actually when you know, what I was expected to happen didn't happen, we saw it as a mistake or a problem. But now we're much more in the you know in in the space where we can talk about those things and mm. um, you know we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination you know that there are times when you know i'll get things wrong and Angela will tell me in no uncertain terms and vice versa that actually that hasn't got us to where we were hoping to get to but we're learning from mm. it. what's the learning what can we you know what can we do differently what can we build upon that will actually make that work and how do we do that in a you know in a way that we recognise we're both shooting for the same goal. Yeah, and the goal is now being lived. It's amazing. We're here in Chichester. We're actually sitting in my new office in the town centre. The children are at their new school. You're gearing up for your new job and all of the rehab, etc., is happening in the background. We're making friends. It's just feeling like a bit of normality again, which is lovely. I'm feeling like I've recovered from the exhaustion. You're making progress every day. And we just wanted to share a little bit of this with you as a thank you really to all of the people that have helped in any way that you've helped. There have been numerous different ways to share with you how well Mr. Cox is doing. And for me to just say to him that I love him, every part of him, even the broken brain bits <laughs> that are recovering and you know that this I think is going to be the thing that we build on in terms of making an already great relationship even better yep I would agree I know I love Angela to bits and I you know I can never be grateful enough for everything that she went through at the beginning when I was unable to do lots of things for myself, whether I was, you know, unable or prohibited from doing them because I was, you know, stuck in a, you know, a hospital and I could only do so, you know, so much from that. But it is very much that, you know, that that basics that we've touched on, which is, you know, don't accept that that'll do, but accept that your perfect view and your perfect plan is not always the way that it, you know, it will turn out. And as things pivot and move around. What are you learning from it? Mm. And how do you take the next step that will get you closer to that goal? And be prepared to experiment and do a few things and learn as a result. And there we are. You can tell that your executive functioning is back in place because that was the perfect summary of the podcast. Not that we're trying to be perfect in any way, but let's face it, a leopard never changes its spots. (laughs) I thought it was that that won't do. So there we are. That's what we have for you today. I hope that you have enjoyed listening and that you've got something from it that you can take away and apply in your world. And no doubt we'll do another one at a point in time because this journey has been multifaceted and there's lots of it that we haven't shared with you today in terms of the things that we've faced and, and what we've learned. So let's see if we can bring something else to you in a future episode. But for now, go and have yourselves a wonderful day. Mr. Cox, thank you very much. 
You're welcome. And everyone, go and have a fantastic day. And thank you, for everyone who supported us through that phase. And so, just like that, we're at the end of the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed your time listening today. And a big thank you from me for taking the time. I'd really love it if you would be able to leave a review because it really does help us to get noticed. And if you haven't already, why not subscribe and then you never miss an episode. I wish you a lovely rest of the day, whatever it is that you're doing. And I hope that you stay safe and well. Thank you.